Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today we have James Hoffman back on the show. We dig into what James has been up to over the last year since he's been on, and then we really dig into and explore the topic of stimulus to fatigue ratio, and really dig into it and the practical way that you might be able to apply this to exercise selection, to periodization, to rep ranges, and all these various factors. Really, really useful chat, I think. And if you aren't aware, we have the Mini Cut Movement, our group coaching service, up and running. You can sign up at any time. And this might just be the perfect time to get your Mini Cut in before Christmas so you can be nice and lean and enjoy all the goodies with a great appetite over the Christmas period and you don't have to worry about dieting anytime soon. So guys, if you want to sign up to the Mini Cut, you can do in the information or description box below. But without further ado, let's get into the show. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have James Hoffman back on the show. I don't know how long you think it's been, James, but it's been a year since you were last on, pretty much a year. It was episode 241. So yeah, about a year. I was thinking it was more than that for some reason. I was thinking because- I I thought so. Oh, okay. Man, I thought I was in California the last time, but yeah, I guess so. Okay, cool. I think we did a QA. and a Yeah, it wasn't that long, uh, but- time oh man this year has just flown by i'm kind of like where's this all gone <laughs> i like your setup now i love the the neon sign back there i like the uh the dragon ball z art there uh, you nice. can t- yeah you know you know your art yeah i got you know, you know this- i mean i'm into the nerdy shit i can't yes. help it <laughs> well and i don't know if last time i had this whole anime sleeve half sleeve i was on. gonna ask that too i was like <laughs> I, I feel dumb asking like did you have a tattoo last time we i don't think i did <laughs> yeah it looks cool i like it i appreciate it yeah i got that done when we moved, so that's where we are. I don't know if I had the recording. No, we, I wasn't in here. I was, we're in our flat. So you haven't seen this setup. So oh, yeah. the uh, the tattoo place is, this sounds ridiculous. This is just me all over. The tattoo place is about a five minute walk away. So like every deload, I was like, right, next piece of the tattoo, next piece of the tattoo. Oh, that's a good way to do it. I have a yeah. bunch of clients who often have to take a, a big break because they get a tattoo. I had one guy who was doing like a sleeve, um, and then he did like a bunch of back stuff and he was like, dude, oh, wow. I got to take some like time off from lifting. And it was like a, I don't want to say it was a big deal, but you know, from as a coach, it was like a big fuss yeah. um, for him. So that's, that's convenient that you were able to do it like incrementally like that. Yeah. It's just because it's literally five minute walk away. It made it so easy. Whereas I actually have another one booked in and I'm, I've decided I'm going to like, I'll, I'll make a bit of a trip for this one. Cause this guy's like really into his anime tattoos and stuff. And I was like, I'll, I'll make the trip. It'll be worth it. Ooh, but I'm like, sounds oh, like it for the deload. <laughs> sounds like I need to fly out that way. <laughs> you know, a guy who's into anime tattoos. All right. Oh, I, the- I'm, I'm, I'm clean. I'm still a virgin here. I've got the, my <laughs> unblemished skin. There's, um, they're like your skin. I remember the first time I was super pale and I went in there and I, well, I'm super pale all the time. He was like, your, your skin is like paper. So you're ah. similar. <laughs> It'd be like so nice to be able to tattoo on it. Uh, I'm sad to report. This is the most tan I've ever been in my life. So oh, wow. uh, I don't really get tan. I just get like freckles, you know, I just yeah. have that, like that Irish kind of complexion. So fake. Tan- have you done fake tan before? You've been more fake tanned. I I did it once, but it was like the the rub on kind, and I just yeah. I looked like Trump basically. I just turned orange <laughs> for a while, and then it got rubbed off in my bed sheets, and I was just like, "Why did we do this?" <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was my oh, girlfriend okay. at the time. She wanted to. She was like, she wanted to see oh. how I would look. That's what it was. I didn't do it for myself. Um, yeah. yeah I, I was thinking it might have been like, I don't know, 
most people in the fitness industry and work in it, they've done a photo shoot at some point or something like this, nice. or like this one random show, but not, not been your gig yet. <laughs> not been my thing. I can't do the show stuff. Uh, our, our boss at RP, Nick just did one. Looks like he got yeah. some, some hardware. So it looks like he did really well. I think Nick. his legs were too big for, um, classic physique so they made him do bodybuilding (laughs) he looked incredible like talk about like just being a great like symbol for the for the company as well as like everyone probably looks towards mike but he's in the background kind of like yeah i'm still doing my thing his quads just looked well i mean like he's not necessarily i don't think as big as mike and everyone but like his physique is incredible He's good shape. He has good lines, good shape. Yeah. And now that his show's over, he's much more pleasant to be around. Big surprise. (laughs) Yeah, I know that. I know that feeling for sure. You (laughs) literally become a different person. So I can't, I don't really, um, yeah, I can't look down at anyone who doesn't compete because why? I, I think it's more crazy if you want to do the damn thing. Right. We have like a handful of people at RP, for those of you who don't know, who do bodybuilding. And so we kind of usually have at least one person who's like super difficult and curmudgeon to work with in the rotation at any given time. Somebody's being a pain in the ass because of this bodybuilding <laughs> shit. Oh, dear. Right. Great. Um, and actually, I guess this is a good opportunity um, to just ask in terms of your own training. How's, how's that been going? I always like to kind of get an insight into, I know you like your lifting as well. So it's good to, to know how you're getting on. It's been really good. It's been good up until like yesterday, like literally like a day or oh, two no. ago. I, um, I've been getting some like kind of sciatica type symptoms and I've been kind of just dealing with it. Um, and then I had one of those days where I ended up driving for like six hours. You know, I was just in the car. My sciatica fe- feelings were just like really flaring up. And I did what any brilliant person would do and try to lift legs later that day and i had kind of like an si flare up so the last couple days i've been a little little wonky um and forgive me uh if i'm very fidgety if you guys are looking at me like what is he doing um i'm just kind of trying to get comfortable but my training's going pretty good i've um i had one of those weird things where i did a cut i had gotten a little you know i don't i don't do anything competitive but um i had gotten a little on the the husky side a little heavier than i wanted to be i was you know around 230 pounds I was like, I want to get back to like, you know, feeling good about myself for the summertime. So I got down to like 205 pounds and I was really happy with how I looked. And then I kind of throughout the summer maintained about 205, 210. So I'm about 210 right now. And for me, that's really great because I can go and do like outdoor stuff and I don't feel winded. And But I had this weird thing where my arms got significantly bigger, kind of out of nowhere, where I was just, I just like, all of a sudden I was like, what? Definitely noticeably bigger. And I can't really explain it. It was just one of those things where I had like a really couple, a couple like really good months of training. And I had been doing a little bit more like mile rep type stuff on the arms. And I feel like that really just kind of came through out of nowhere. Um, and so I, I, last couple weeks, I've been like, oh, oh checking myself out. Like, yeah. My, and because to me, like uh, my arms and legs have always been weak points sure. for me, especially my legs. And uh, my legs kind of came up as I was um, training harder and harder and learning more about this stuff, my arms always were kind of lagging behind. So now I feel like a respectable fitness person where I'm like, I got the arms. <laughs> Before I always had like Gumby arms. I got a long reach too. So I yeah. got like big, you know, lanky arms. So feeling good about it lately. It's, I mean, it's nice that they've come up and I guess I put it, I imagine the kind of sports scientist in you is frustrated that you don't have like a, an obvious, like this is why I did. And this is the outcome. It's like, they got bigger and I'm not entirely well, you did a lot of things right clearly with your training, but it's not like there was one clear thing that you did differently. Right. And I wasn't massing or anything. I was mostly, oh, really? I did a cut and then I did, you know, yeah. like maintenance for a while. Oh. And then it was just like, poof. And I was like, 
I don't know. If something happened. It's uh, <laughs> what what's it called? Main gaining. That's clearly the the secret. It's like yeah, or game taining. Is that game taining? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't uh, know. I mean, I do think like and Mike and I have had this talk on the, the Q&A a bunch of times. Like I, I, I am a believer that you can kind of have like latent hypertrophy effects that don't manifest until conditions are just a little bit better because the training that you do has an acute effect on, you know, your the, the your DNA and how it's phenotypically expressed. Right. And so if conditions are not conducive for muscle growth, they may not be able to manifest. However, the underlying work might have already been done. And so at a later time, you might be able to express some of the gains that you made a, long, a while back. And this is what we see with like beginners and intermediates a lot when they do like a really hard cut. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they start making like massive gains in their like bench or their legs. And you're just like, where did that come from? What well, probably came from the training that they did several months ago. And now that they're not cutting anymore, it's able to express itself a little bit. Now that's, that's a little bit of speculation on my part. Um, but there, there does seem to be a basis for that line of reasoning. So I think I might might have had some of that experience where I just got into like a really good groove on my arm training and I wasn't really thinking about it because I wasn't trying to gain weight or anything. And now it's kind of just come out a little bit. So yeah, it's, I think we're learning more and more about, I don't know, hypertrophy. You think you know it and then these kind of different things come out. I, I don't know if that's actually at all related to overreaching because obviously that's part of the like super compensation effect, but I think it's a little bit separate even to overreaching, right? Yeah, overreaching is kind of come into question recently in a lot of different aspects. I, I, I'm still kind of in the, um, I guess you'd call it the old school sports scientist perspective where um, it does seem that there is a benefit to overreaching, but like contextually for something like bodybuilding, Maybe, maybe not. There is there an argument of like you might actually be doing more damage than good in some cases. Like the amount of overreaching that is productive might be a lot less than we traditionally thought. Because most of the time when people talk about like overreaching, they think about like getting crippling fatigue, really, really sore, just exhausted, all those things. And like there, there, there may be a benefit to that, right? Because you're definitely to get there, you had to do some hard training, but you might not actually have to get there to get you know, 95% of the effect. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, you can just back off a little bit and get almost the same effect than going all the way to like, you know, your total systemic MRVs and et cetera. So that's a bit contentious at the moment. We don't really know. Yeah. I guess it's kind of like, you think I think about it like edging towards a cliff as you're going along your mesocycle and you maybe you push to know that you're at the cliff and you push a little bit over, but not so far that you're like, you've fallen down, you can scramble back up during the deload. Whereas yeah, if you overreach, I guess, or you push that thing too hard, too far, it could take you like a, you might need to do like an active recovery after that deload. It's like, well, yes. pushing to that point, it clearly wasn't worth it. If I have to take that much more time off, I expect, I guess. So that's interesting. I have a theory too, and I'd be interested to hear your take on this. Um, one of the reasons why I think like training to the point of functional overreaching is good is because a lot of people are actually just chronically under training. They're not training as much as they should be. So it's not necessarily that they are overreaching. That's like probably the biggest benefit. It's that they're just, they're shifting their training volume up into productive ranges. Whereas before they were kind of in like the maybe less productive, maybe like MEV side of things, or maybe even that in that MEV to MV kind of side of things. So I think the pursuit of overreaching just naturally pushes people into harder training when they probably were chronically under training, which has been my experience in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of like, uh, I guess people can make the argument 
from the literature that we have, you don't need to train to failure or like not reps in reserve ever. And maybe you should just stick around like to RAR, but it's like in practice, like how, how do you do that really productively for a long period of time? It becomes very challenging. So you go through this kind of like, right, make sure I'm pushing and adding a rep here or there, adding some load so that I make sure I am training hard enough. And eventually I'll have to go towards the not RAR to know that I am. Yes. How many, so like, here's, here's like, how many people do you know, or maybe have trained or worked with where they're like, yeah, man, I train real fucking hard. And you're like, cool. Like, what, what do you do? And they're like, well, I do three sets of biceps and then, you know, I take the day off and you find out <laughs> that they really don't really do much. They do kind of like a muscle and fitness magazine workout where it's like three sets of this, three sets of this, three sets of this one time per week. And you're like, homie, have you ever done like 10 sets per muscle group per session and maybe do it like two to three times per week, even maybe for something like arms or delts, maybe four times per week. And they're like, what? That's crazy. And it's like, yeah, you just been under training this whole time, man. You, you don't do shit. That, that happens to me all the time. Have you had that? Yeah. I mean, I typically get the people who are in that more is better mentality. So I have, the okay, people so that you, their volumes yeah, are true. just like, I need to bring them back and focus on quality. Uh, mm, so yeah, not, not as often do I get the person, but when I talk to people who are maybe more that gen pop in the gym, that I train at, and I see them training, I see what they're doing. I'm kind of like, ah, oh, it's not all that much. <laughs> and then they're not really working all that hard. So it's probably just the, the fact of the matter is I draw in a lot of people that are already, they've kind of gone past that point and now they're too far the other way where they're like, more is better. And I must just keep going. <laughs> you, you, you get like the more educated crowd too, where I think you get a lot of people who are already kind of like intermediate late intermediate stage sure. and they just yeah. need some like fine tuning some help from a professional that makes a lot of sense yeah they get into the thing i see most common and i fell into this trap myself is kind of they think about our volumes the key driver of hypertrophy i should be adding sets every week to every single muscle group and then they get into a position where they're just like they've got so much work to do they can't do it to a high quality and so they're just yes. kind of pissing around not doing all that much kind of get into a junk volume that's essentially where they end up oh, which man. is unfortunate yeah. That's a struggle. And sometimes too, it's like even just little things like their technique. Like I, I've been trying to yeah. remind my new clients because it's something I kind of have forgotten with a lot of my clients. I always just assume that their technique's really good because sure. I send them videos and stuff. And then I'm like, send, send me your video. Let me see what you're doing. And almost like every time I ask, I'm like, oh, that's why you're doing this many sets of this or that. It's because your technique kind of blows. Um, and that's okay. That's just something yeah. you got to work out. Yeah, for sure. So actually that uh, relates nicely onto the topic I wanted to delve into today, because I think it's something, well, I mean, we use it when we talk about on the improvement season, me and Pascal, like stimulus to fatigue ratio. It's something I use just mm. in my like day-to-day -day language, talking with clients and it's come up the, on the podcast a lot, but I don't think we've ever had like a deep dive into it. And particularly this sort of discussion where I know you coach lots of people. So kind of the practical side of it too. So uh, I thought we'd start off with kind of almost defining that. And I think people here also, at least this was me, I was like, I heard stimulus to fatigue ratio and SFR. And then I heard Mike, he would talk about raw stimulus magnitude. And I almost thought it was like a separate thing to it, but it's like, no, actually that's, it's stimulus, <laughs> is raw stimulus magnitude. So that was one thing I was already like, ah, oh, where I felt really dumb when I realized that's what <laughs> Mike was basically referring to. But so if we can maybe talk about some of the stimulus side first, which includes raw stimulus magnitude, that'd be really cool. I don't know where you'd want to start. Yeah, yeah. Mike has, he has kind of a gift for putting some of those concepts into words. That's one of his like secret superpowers, yes. right? Where he just finds the, like very nice phrasing for things. Yeah. So um, Mike and I have thought about this kind of stuff a lot. Obviously, you've probably heard us talking about jump volume and 
volume landmarks and blah, blah, blah. And so we really kind of started getting into this idea of what, you know, you can think of as like efficiency, like what am I putting in and what am I getting out, right? What's the return on the investment that I'm putting in or what's the cost that I also have to incur? What's the net benefit, right? So we've been thinking about this a lot. And we know that there's a lot of different ways in which you can stimulate all sorts of different fitness characteristics, right? And most of the time we're talking about hypertrophy, but we know like, okay, if you wanna get stronger, you gotta put some weight on the bar and you have to use exercises where you can exert a lot of force and use a lot of weight, right? Same kind of thing with hypertrophy. We know that um, there is kind of tension mediated hypertrophy. We know that volume definitely plays a big role. We also know that there are like metabolite type effects, whether that's the actual accumulation of metabolites within the local muscle or even just activating the energy pathways which accumulate said metabolites seems to be related in some way. So there's all these kind of different ways in which you can kind of elicit the same effect, which is muscle growth. Raw stimulus magnitude basically is kind of like the absolute, if you were to, to look at things in like a absolute and relative terms, raw stimulus magnitude would be like our absolute kind of term. Like if you could put a number on it, like how much stimulus did you provide the muscle or the movement that you're training, right? And typically in these instances, we're going to be looking at just like how much tension were you able to generate in the muscle? You know, what was the effective range of motion that you were able to use? What was kind of like just the, uh, were you able to, I'm trying to use this in like concise words and not be too rambly. Were you able to target the muscle in such a way where the forces and the movements like the kinetics and kinematics were localized to the muscle you were trying to train and not just spread out over a whole bunch of other areas, right? And we're looking at basically, if you were to look at kind of the fundamental things like tension, how much tension did you put on that muscle in order to stimulate it to grow? And so kind of the, the things where we, we look at raw sti stimulus magnitude are kind of typically things like your squatting, your bench press, your deadlift, your kind of typical barbell variations, because in those cases, more often than not, you're just able to exert a lot of direct force on the muscle so much that you would not be otherwise able to do it in a different exercise. So for example, um, even if you were to compare dumbbell bench press versus barbell bench press, right? We know that the barbell bench press just has a higher raw stimulus magnitude just because the amount of force that's exerted by the pecs is much larger than the dumbbells. Why? Well, because the dumbbells are inherently more unstable. A lot of the force is lost due to just stabilizing the dumbbells, whereas the barbell is very stable and you were just able to exert as much of that force as you can into moving the barbell back and forth, right? Same thing with like a squat or a deadlift. And so in this case, the raw stimulus magnitude is primarily generated through the amount of just raw, like absolute tension and stress that you can put on that muscle. One of the downsides is kind of looking at, um, okay, that's great. So I can generate like a really big stimulus through things like tension, right? By just putting a lot of strain on that muscle, that's cool. But we also know that there's no free lunch, right? So that's gonna come at a cost. And the cost is kind of the fatiguing effects of doing whatever exercise that you choose. And fatigue can manifest in a number of different ways. It can just be having an exhausting type effect, like a systemic effect where any of you who have ever done deadlifts for sets of 10 know how you just feel afterwards and you're just like, fuck me, I am wiped out, right? It can have that kind of effect. It can have kind of, um, a damage, local damage type effect where some uh, exercises just actually inflict a lot more damage onto the tissue because of the way that it's targeting the muscle. 
It could also just have local like metabolic effects. It can just wipe out that uh, the, the energy storage locally at that muscle. So there's a lot of different interesting fatigue effects that we can look at. And so when we're talking about kind of stimulus to fatigue ratio, what we're trying to look at is like, okay, I want to get as much stimulus as possible, right? Maybe. Only if that as much stimulus as possible side is counterbalanced well with the fatigue side, because typically when you look at something like raw stimulus magnitude, unfortunately, the net effect there is when you pick something with a big raw stimulus magnitude, it usually comes with a proportionately high fatigue magnitude. So what you find is that although some exercises are really great, like bench presses, squats and stuff, they are inherently more fatiguing than something like the dumbbell bench press, which you can do a lot of, you can still get a great workout from, but you just don't feel the wear and tear on your wrists, on your elbows, on your shoulders nearly as much. And so Mike and I have been kind of thinking about this for a long time, and we tried to as Mike likes to do, kind of systematize it in a way where we can look at these things and say like, okay, so can I rate these things on a personal level using this SFR scale or stimulus to fatigue ratio scale where I can kind of start picking exercises, picking rep ranges, picking intensification techniques that give me the best of the stimulus world while minimizing the worst of the fatigue world. So that's kind of the goal when making this assessment. Hopefully that wasn't too long of a ramble there. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And the the example between uh, the bench and kind of dumbbells, everyone like inherently, you're a little bit more unstable with the dumbbells, and you have to coordinate that. So it kind of makes sense that you can kind of put all that force through with a barbell. But again, everyone probably has had that experience, especially once you start lifting heavy, it starts beating things up a little bit more quickly than the dumbbells does. So like you said, for, sure. for every kind of gimme, there's a gotcha, there's always a catch with all of these things. So then you have to be a bit more careful with your exercise selection or especially i guess as you, I mean, this it links nicely into the volume landmarks as you have less you have to be more careful with like your discretionary spend basically your volume as you get more advanced you have to be careful with what you're buying and or rather what exercises you're choosing so that it's kind of fits nicely into the program absolutely and there's been like really cool um instances this is just me being a sports science dork where they've looked at um using force plates and EMG and some other stuff. Obviously, none of these things are perfect, but they've actually looked at like how much force can you exert um, like bilaterally. So if we look at each limb, whether it's an arm and two arms or two legs and say, okay, if you're doing some task like a squat, can we look at the forces on both sides and see when you actually are exerting more? And what we find is in something that's in unstable, um, you can look at the amount of force that's produced bilaterally, like on both sides of your feet or on your arms versus something that's done more stable. And what they find is that the more stable surface or the more stable instance, you can actually exert more than the summated forces on the unstable. So if you were to combine, you know, arms one and two or legs one and two in the unstable, you would think that it would be roughly the same. It's not. It's actually you're in the stable condition. You're able to exert even more force than the summation of the two in the unstable condition, which, again, plays into that raw stimulus magnitude idea where it's just like you're just on a different level of force generation in some instances than in others. That makes complete sense. And I guess um, on a side note, I, I inherently, when I think about unstable exercises, I think something like a lunge or something like this. And obviously sure. you, you can make it as stable as you can. Like, I don't know, you might even do like a Bulgarian split squat in a Smith machine. I've done that before. But there's always inherently when, I don't know, that single leg's working on its own, it doesn't quite feel the same as doing like a, a Smith squat, for example. Sure. 
Smith squat's a great one. That's one that kind of gets poo-pooed in, yeah. in my field in the sport physiology world. People are like, what you doing on that Smith machine? Boy, what are you doing? That ain't going to do shit. Uh, but it's actually a great one because you can use both legs and it's in like a stable track. So you can really get after it. That's one for like hypertrophy purposes. Oh, man. And I guess the same, like, uh, but there's, again, there's gimmies and gotchas like uh, with the, the Bulgarian split squat, the lunge varieties. I tend to find at least they have, they accumulate a lot of metabolites. Like the pump I can sometimes get through those is kind of oh, crazy. Awesome. And they don't tend to beat up the kind of joints and everything as much. Cause again, it's like a single limb. So you're not kind of in this kind of trajectory, locked in trajectory sometimes. So yeah, it's like every exercise has like, there's a lot of good exercises and kind of you to and throw between them a little bit. You yeah. And it's that. good. It's good to have a variety, right? So it, we all know intuitively, like you can't just fill your training programs with only raw stimulus magnitude emphasized things, right? Because what happens? You just get beat up right away. Or the amount of training that you can do is just really low. Whereas if you have a little bit of something that's kind of hard and heavy, like if you're doing a high RSM exercise and kind of that five to 10 rep range, well, that's really great for um, developing strength and muscle mass, but you can't do a ton of it. But you can also add other exercises like those Bulgarian split squats, you can use a lighter rep range, like the 10 to 20 kind of thing, or even a little bit higher. And what you find is that you can actually train a whole lot more than what you could if you were only doing heavy stuff all the time or, or compound stuff all the time. So there's kind of a, a balance there where what you find is that like, yeah, you can try and favor the stimulus side really heavily, but there's just diminishing returns at some point, whereas having a, a little bit of a blend of things that are kind of a mix of maybe high stimulus, high fatigue and moderate stimulus, low fatigue seems to be kind of the, the sweet spot for most people. And that's why we might do like a heavy bench press. And then we might do some like lighter cable flies or some inclined dun dumbbell press or something. And I, I'm sure you can relate to this. Um, Sometimes like uh, I've noticed for myself, if I'm doing, let's just use bench press since we've been on that one, you might do like four or five sets of bench press. The first two sets, you get like a real good pump and you're like, whoa, that feels good. And then kind of towards the fourth or fifth set, you're like, ah, now I'm just kind of like tired. I'm not really feeling it quite as much. And you're thinking like, well, that was only four sets. I need to do like maybe upwards of eight sets of chest today. I could do more bench press or... I might do something else and you switch to something like an incline dumbbell press for sets of like maybe 15 and all of a sudden kablamo you get that pump again your muscles are responding really well and you're like oh i'm feeling great again whereas you were just kind of going flat on that previous exercise um, and that's why it's good to kind of use a little bit of variety because a there's only so much wear and tear you can take from some of that hard and heavy stuff and b there's lots of um interesting intersections of different exercises different rep ranges, different um, like techniques that you can use, different intensification techniques, all of which can be individually tailored to your program, which is kind of the fun part where you get to see like, and that's like one thing that's fun with me talking with Mike, because anthropometrically, we're so different. We're on the opposite ends of the spectrum. He's kind of short and stocky, and I'm kind of tall and lanky. And so things that um, work for him often don't work for me and vice versa. And even on the things that we we both agree, cable cable lat prayers is one where we both really get a lot out of it. But if you ever watch Mike's videos, he does the super like lean tilt forward, arms out wide, pulls it down low. I do the upright arms narrow kind of into the pelvis just because it's just where I feel it the most. And so it's just interesting to talk to people and see kind of like what, where they kind of get into those little grooves and those little zones. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a plan? Then 
it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We create the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, and I think that uh, that you bridges nicely because it's that individualization of it because I think it's so easy to uh, in this day and age particularly you can look at your favorite influencer on TikTok Instagram whatever and look at the exercises they're doing like oh they're big I should follow that exercise but it like you and Mike if you were to just follow everything Mike's doing you'd be like man this just none of this really feels quite right and so that blends into some of the things I wanted to talk about in terms of when you're in the gym and you're trying to kind of work out what's a good SFR exercise for me, kind of this one or this one? What are some of those kind of like in the gym kind of biofeedback? I don't know if that's the term. I don't know if you'd like that term being yeah. applied to these, uh, but what, what are some of those kind of, and what in terms of like for your clients and things, how do you tend to describe those terms? Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple different ways that we can look at it. The first is kind of that, like you were saying, biofeedback, the, the nerdy word for that is interoception. Um, and that's <laughs> something that, that you, yeah, it's, I know I'm a dork. Um, <laughs> That's something that you're going to notice kind of like right then and there in the moment, right? And then there's going to become time series kind of things where the next day you might gauge like, or maybe even later that day, how disrupted do I feel? You know, how much soreness do I get? So let's just start with kind of the easy ones, right? The first couple things that you want to look for when kind of making this calculation in your head, is this exercise good or am I, is doing this exercise in this rep range good? Because that's, that's like another kind of fun layer to that. And I'll try to not change it too hard. But for example... You might be doing easy curls and you might be doing them, you know, sets of five to 10. So let's say like eight, seven, six kind of sets like that. Right. And you're like, ah, like you kind of are thinking about it. And what you want to think about is, am I getting a really good pump when I stop the set? Do I feel like my, my arms are exploding? Do I feel like a lot of blood flowing? Can I see like them pumping up? Do I feel that pump? That's usually a good indicator. Why? Because the pump is a result of what's called reactive hyperemia, where uh, when you are contracting the muscle, it tends to occlude itself a little bit. And as a result of you releasing the tension, you get a disproportionate amount of blood flow going to that area, right? So blood is redirected into that area as a result of you contracting it. So the pump is like a direct indicator of like, did you actually work this muscle because you're getting reactive hyperemia? So that's a good one. Um, another one is the mind-muscle connection. So are you doing these bicep curls and it does it feel like you're just kind of heaving it around or do you have a deep sense of the muscle contracting from start to finish? Do you feel control across the entire range? Do you feel like the force of your contraction as you're doing it? Can you feel like your, um, your limbs moving through time and space as you're doing it? Do you have a really deep sense and a deep connection of not just the movement itself, but also kind of the intrinsic properties of contracting that muscle? So the mind-muscle connection, I know that sounds like hippy-dippy kind of stuff, very important for this calculation. So 
those are ones you're going to kind of notice right there in the moment. And so going back to this bicep curl example, you might find that doing sets of like five to 10, you know, somewhere in there is kind of meh on all of those accounts. You feel like you're just heaving it up. You don't really feel like you're contracting. You kind of just feel like you're just moving your arms around. Eh, not so great. What if you took the weight down so that now you're doing sets of maybe like 15, all of a sudden, boom, you feel your arms exploding. You feel all those contractions really, really hard. You put the weight down and you're like, oh my God, look at me. And you're veiny and all crazy. And you just felt everything about it, right? Boom. So it's not that the exercise was necessarily a bad SFR choice, but that exercise in a certain repetition range had a really, really strong stimulus for you in terms of your ability to get a good pump and perceive that you are actually affecting that muscle. And then, so those are ones you can kind of look at just in the moment. That's just like as you're lifting. What you can also kind of look and feel for is how much disruption did I do on that muscle itself? Lunges are a great example of this one. So um, if you guys, I'm sure all of your listeners can relate to, maybe lunges aren't in the mix all the time. And when you bring them back into the mix, you do one, maybe you do half a set and all of a sudden your ass no longer works anymore, right? It's just like, you just can't move. You're just like, I, I'm done, right? You you need some actual time in the short term to recover your ability to move around, right? That's kind of like this idea of disruption. So you've disturbed that muscle so much that its functional capacity is now limited for a little while. And that's something you can look at kind of in the short to moderate term. I mean, in some cases, and like in the case of lunges, that happens like almost immediately. In other exercises like chest, uh, arms, things like that, that might be something you notice later in the day where maybe you were laying on your stomach and you tried to kind of get yourself up and you're, you feel your chest like, like, no, 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 can't do that. That's an indicator that, oh man, whatever you did before actually disrupted your chest's ability to function for a little while effectively. So that's a good sign in terms of presenting a stimulus. Now, it's also a sign of fatigue at the same time, but at the very, the very least, you knew that you did something to the muscle itself. And then later you can also look at, you know, kind of like how much soreness did you get from that exercise? Now, soreness is again, a little contentious. We're not, we're not um, pursuing soreness for its own sake, but it can be a good indicator that you had put tension on the muscle in question, right? Stiff-legged deadlifts are a great example of this. When you do them correctly, the next day, there's no question that you trained your hamstrings because your hamstrings hurt like hell, right? But if you're doing them kind of with like a, a round back and you're not, you know, nice and tight against your legs as you're doing them, you might not feel that at all, right? And you might just feel kind of like you're maybe a little soreness in your hips or your back. That would be kind of an indicator that in that case, your technique was not like a high SFR technique for the purposes of stimulating your hamstrings because your hamstrings never got sore. And really what that means is that you, you didn't put tension on them. And that's kind of the what that tells us. Again, I don't want to encourage people to use soreness as this like, I think people take soreness too seriously sometimes. It's just a good indicator that like you put tension where you wanted to put tension and you did some damage to that tissue. That's that's good good enough for soreness. So those are the ones I usually kind of think about. I'm trying to think if there's some, any other ones off the top of my head, but those are the ones that I usually look for in terms of gauging whether or not that was a good movement for myself. So here's kind of the, the trick with SFR you know you got a good SFR situation in terms of the exercise you chose, the rep range that you chose to do it, and the technique in which you were executing it, in that you have hit your goal volume for the session. So whether it was like an MEV type session or you know kind of like a normal training session, like MAV range, you know that it's good when that number is as low as possible. 
right? And you are not like debilitated. That's like an ideal situation where your efficiency is really high. You only had to do two or three sets to get to that point where you really just can't do any more and you're still recovering in an appropriate timeline. That's when you've hit the like SFR jackpot when you haven't, you don't have to do a lot to get exactly what you need, which is really good because then you're not getting a lot of the kind of systemic spillover of having to just do lots and lots and lots of extra sets. It's like the most tight and efficient where you just, you, you only spent the minimal amount of energy to get the exact growth stimulus that you needed. I have a perfect anecdotal example. I, um, I've not really ever had access to a good leg press before. Ooh, and I, yeah. when we moved here, uh, this gym has one of the leg press that the foot plate has a bend in it. So I can actually kind of use the leg press as it, as it should be. And I put some yoga blocks behind it. So I get deeper than I've ever gotten a leg press and for a nice full range of motion. And I, my quads, I, I literally actually was this past week, I've never had my quads as like pumped and full and kind of, I just like, <laughs> like the session stimulus for the quads was just, it was just absurd. Like, I'm just like, I've never experienced this in my life and I've been lifting for like 16 years. This is kind of crazy, but it's like that jackpot I only needed. This was my overreaching, or overreaching week. It was my week before deloading. Uh, and I did three sets of it and I was just like, there's no way I need any more. Yeah, I'm done. that sort of situation. <laughs> that's amazing, dude. Leg press is one of those like, uh, like I think that's one that we all take for granted because every most gyms have a leg press, and you're just like, ah, leg press, whatever, it's dumb. But when you learn how to like leg press with really good quad targeting technique, and you figure out like what rep ranges are really good for you, oh man, it's hard to beat that one because um, to get the like equivalent amount of stimulus to in like squatting in some cases. For a lot of people, like your back and your other, there will be other limiting factors. Like for me, like my uh, my SI joint and my back is a huge limiting factor to how much legs I can do. Um, no worries about You're the barking. dog. <laughs> I, I have like the two barkiest dogs on the planet. I can't believe they're actually not barking. Oh, it's good. <laughs> yeah, um, but like, but like a really good leg press is one of those things where it, it's a game changer to your lifting routine because you have to spend so much less energy to get the same like leg stimulus. And that's one of the things that's a downside if you're like me and you have a home gym where you have to be kind of careful of which yeah. on your leg choices because your options are more limited. Um, I just got a belt squat, uh, which is, I really enjoy, but I wish, wish I had a leg press because a good leg press is like mm, marron, so good. I think that's uh, that's another, I've, I'm currently leg pressing and using a belt squat, but the, the raw stimulus magnitude of like I'm doing myo match on the uh, belt squat because it, it works almost perfectly for that because you're not kind of axial loaded in it. A leg press could work, but the stimulus is just Hard. so crazy. Like it's yeah. just horrendous. But for the, the the belt squat, it works perfectly. But I, I kind of find that I have to do that to match the kind of set to set. I like my myo match sets match. They might be three attempts to failure. And that's like one equivalent of my leg press because it's just so much more stimulative. Interesting, but more fatiguing at the same time. In like that one set is also much more fatiguing than the belt squat. Just the the fatigue side is so low. Do you like doing that? I, I've I, I've been kind of a, a wiener about doing like myo reps on the belt squat. I haven't done it yet. Okay, because I'm like I'm I, I know it's gonna be brutal and I don't want to <laughs> yeah. do it. Is it is it is it gnarly? It's it's pretty gnarly. Not like I can't imagine doing it on leg press, but um, it's it's doable. It's quite I I, I kind doable? of enjoy it. <laughs> Okay. That's one where I've, I always kind of look at it and I'm like, not this time, not this time. <laughs> uh, but I loved how you described, cause 
the individuality of it is not just exercise it isn't just and then rep range but it's also then technique within all of that because yeah. again you'll see like you mentioned with the, the lap prayers people will perform those slight like it's the same movement but you are performing it slightly differently because it just feels that little bit better so you, i know for for some movements i need a bit more maybe kind of i call it like momentum and drive but it's not swinging it's kind of just getting the motion going where getting it going yeah other clients are like they that just like throws them off and they need to have it more slow and controlled so i think that's a brilliantly described yeah and it's it's that's kind of the fun thing where there, there, there's not really a a right or wrong answer in a lot of these cases so like one of the questions that we get a lot is something to the effect of like what's the best sfr exercise for chest or for quads or for whatever and it's like dude it's just trial and error like i, I can kind of I can kind of get you to some that I think are pretty close for most people, but they might be garbage for you. I don't know. You have to try it. And like um, uh, Charlie's a really good example uh, from Team Forum. I hope, hopefully you guys know Charlie. Um, he's like a very fast twitch athlete kind of guy. And I might say, hey, do uh, leg presses in the 10 to 20 kind of rep range. That To me, that would be like a pretty pretty safe bet for most people if I was to give like a really blanket just like what, what's a good quad SFR leg presses 10 to 20 probably going to get most people for Charlie it's terrible his best SFRs are when he is actually using heavy weights real explosively right and why it's just because he's more of like a fast twitch type athlete um, and that's okay it's just like he's just a little outside the norm on that particular instance he might be in the kind of in the norm in other instances but you don't know until you try and that's kind of the fun thing and so you have this this weird Bob Ross situation where you have to kind of paint your program thinking about these things because you might find that um, here's a good one too. Um, I find that I get a really, really good SFR from cable tricep press downs if I do them with a narrow grip and I do mile reps. If I just do straight sets on that, it's very like meh. It's okay. Not, not terrible, but not great. But when I do mile reps on that, it's like nothing beats that for tricep for me. And that's just like through trial and error. Like there's no, there's no specific reason. It's just one of those that just matches me well. And so I think that's kind of the fun part where you kind of just, you get to try as a coach, you try a lot of these things out on yourself, see what was kind of good and what was kind of bad about it. You throw them at your clients and say, Hey, I kind of like to do it this way. Let me see what you think. And they go that blue, I didn't feel anything. I was really sore. And now my wrist is fucked up and you go, okay, wow, that was bad. Let's, let's just go a completely different direction and do something else and, and go from there. And I think yeah. that's the fun of it. No, it definitely is. And uh, yeah, something I, I, have an, I wonder what you think to this is I use some of the things you talked about there in terms of kind of the pump disruption and I name it kind of stimulus succession. I, I, I used to get people to rate them individually and now I get them to rate it in kind of just one all like encompassing thing because so it's just too much. It, I, and I'm pretty happy some exercises, I don't know, for hamstrings, not many people get like a pump so much in the hamstrings. They just kind of, kind of feel it's hard tight. to rate that one. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of call that part of disruption, kind of that tightness and the quivering within the muscle. So I have in session stimulus for muscles and exercises and I go minimal, which is basically like nothing really happened to high. So it's minimal, low, medium, high. And, uh, but the, the thing I have found and me as well is some muscles like my high for quads, like I experienced just recently, some muscles are never going to experience that. Their high is almost an individual, like every muscle is almost individual. Do you find that as well for like some muscles, just you're never going to get the kind of 
pump that you achieve in like the chest and quads as maybe like the back or something like this. Yeah. And, and everybody's a little bit different in this. I think from like, if we were to make a, like a broad strokes generality, I think like hamstrings is a really great example of that where mind muscle connection, burning pump, it's like, you just don't really feel it unless you're doing like really high rep leg curls. That's the only instance where you can be like, Oh, I really felt the burn and the pump in my hamstring, but everything else you're like, eh, um, I think for, for some people it's, it's that I, for myself personally, um, like upper back, almost never, almost never. And, uh, lats only recently have, I've really started to like get a really good mind muscle connection with, because, um, cause I work out at the home gym. I, my limit, my, the, my lat exercises were limited to mostly just like pull up variations. I just got a cable set up and now I can do like pull downs. I can do lat prayers. I can do like cable rows and I can do those in different rep ranges. And I started to actually have really, really great lat training and starting to feel my lats, just being able to do the lat prayers, just being able to do the lat pull downs at a higher rep range than doing, I mean, I suck at pull-ups. So I was doing like, you know, sets of eight to 10 pull-ups and just getting nothing. Just my arms would just get beat up at that point. And so I think everybody kind of has that. I think there are some that like, most people will generally feel like most people will feel like in their arms when they get into a good groove on something, they'll get like a good connection with their arms. I think a lot of people will have trouble with like glutes, hamstrings. Um, I want to say lower back, but then at the same time, if you do like a couple sets of deadlift, then you're like, oof, now I feel it in my back. Um, yeah, but everybody's kind of different, you know, yeah. you never know. Yeah. And I guess as well, or at least this would indicate that, that the muscles where it is harder to get those high amounts, like delts for example like i can get a pump in my delts but they're never like a this huge like balloon of a pump in my delts they tend yeah. to also lend themselves to higher volumes like it's like well you maybe need to keep doing more and to the point of which like you said with the bench like you kind of just you kind of get to this point it's like ah, okay i'm never going to get to that sort of high that my chest feels but this is kind of high now for my delts like i've done five sets of lateral raises and there's no point going beyond this because it just starts feeling meh Exactly. And that might be an instance where you switch to like a higher frequency than normal. And like some people might only be training delts like twice a week, maybe even just like once per week. And I might push somebody to like start at like four times per week and just not not doing a ton of delts. It's not like you're spending all your time doing delts, but it's like, yeah, okay, you do like four sets of lateral raises here, you do some upright rows there, you do some reverse cable, you know, here, it's, it's not much, but that little bit of extra frequency because the recovery timeline is so short can be helpful for smaller muscle groups like that, especially when you're not, you're not feeling it. It's hard. Like delts is one of the, do you ever get like a, in delt training sometimes, oh, I will get into like a really good groove, but when you get into a good groove on delts, then you can never get comfortable. Once you start getting that like acid burn feeling, then it's just like, <laughs> you're in between sets and you're like, fuck, I can't, I can't get comfortable. This is horrible. <laughs> I have that with uh, if I end up doing calves and like I do like shoulder Ooh. like they have the shoulder plates so I'm like my shoulders felt okay until I got under here and now like this is just like torturous <laughs> or it's like uh, trying to do I used to do try and do calves after quads and I was just like I can't do that because my quads uh, are <laughs> like quivering as my they're trying to stabilize the knee <laughs> yes calves are such a pain in the ass to train once I remember a couple of times I, I did calves at the beginning of a session because it was like a weak point for me for a long time. Um, and so I put them in the beginning and then I would be like, if I did calves first, then I couldn't do like bicep curls or it would be like pain. It would be really awkward because standing upright and having your weight shift around, your calves are already yeah. like weakened. Right. And I was just like, God damn it. Now I can't do curls because it's stupid calves. 
<laughs> they're, they're a pain in the ass. Everybody yeah, hates course. it. <laughs> um, and actually, that brings me then to something uh, I think you guys termed the ghetto MAV. Uh, MEV, sorry. So trying to determine kind of that sweet spot of where to start maybe that first week of training. And obviously, I guess from the literature, we know maybe like eight to 10 sets per muscle group per week seems to be like from averages seems to be it. But if someone's then trying to use some of this kind of stimulus and fatigue side to engage that for themselves a little bit better and individualize that, what what might that look like for someone? Yeah, I haven't, we haven't, I actually, it's funny that you brought that up. I haven't said that in a while. And I was like, oh yeah, we used to say that a lot. Um, yeah. So that would just be for me, like if we're looking at the ghetto MEV is kind of like, you're not doing these like explicit calcul, like you were saying, like you're not calculating these things really explicitly and each exercise, you're kind of just winging it, eyeballing it, saying like, how did that feel overall? Right. And so kind of with the ghetto MEV, what we're looking for you to get is like a little bit of pump, pretty good mind muscle connection, a little bit of soreness, right? And that's kind of the place where you stop. Uh, so um, you would stop training per session. So let's say that you started the session, you picked an exercise, a rep range and the technique that you wanted to use. You did one set and you're like, okay, that feels pretty good. You do another set and you're like, you feel the pump kind of like swelling and you kind of feel a little bit even more dialed in. You're like, oh, it's getting getting a little better as we go. Even if your reps are going down, it just kind of naturally feels a little bit better. You do another set and it feels kind of like you've peaked already where it's just like, that was a big pump. I really felt like my technique and my like connection to the technique was really high. That would be like kind of the ghetto MEV where you say, stop, see how it feels tomorrow. So if you felt like you got some disruption, some soreness, like not, not crippling, not, not terrible, but you're like, oh yeah, I worked out yesterday. That's kind of like what we would call the ghetto MEV, meaning like that's kind of the, the baseline where you, of productive training. That's where you would probably want to start next time around and then kind of progress from there, whether you're adding weight or adding sets or any, you know, any combination of those things. Um, but just kind of like a little, little something, not like what you don't want to do is feel that peak pump, feel that peak connection and go, oh, I'm in it now. And then keep going, adding more sets, um, even adding more exercises and then being crippled like the next day. You might feel like, man, I really got after it. I'm really sore. I'm proud of myself. That's fine. But where do you go from here? Right? How do you, you know, have a progressive overload model over the course of the next several weeks when that was pretty much your MRV for that particular muscle group in one session. So it's, um, it's not the ghetto MEV is kind of meant to be like a jump off point without it being unnecessarily cumbersome in terms of like the analysis. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm when I get people to kind of score it, like I described on like lows and mediums is kind of what I'm looking for here. If we're edging into like highs already, I'm like, ah, oh, maybe we started off a bit more than a bit, yeah, basically doing a bit more than we needed to. Uh, I've certainly yeah. done that because it's especially you can probably speak to this, James, you might be better than me, but it's almost comes around every post deload. I get into that first week of training. I'm like fresh. I'm feeling good. I'm like, oh, man, oh, this is yeah. feeling great. Oh, just do one more set. It'll be fine. And then the next day I'm like, man, I should have done that. And then I'm still sore going into the next session. Shouldn't have done. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because I was I was in the back of my mind. I was like, oh, I should have brought this up, too. And you just did. Um, the overlapping soreness is another good indicator for the ghetto MEV. So if you're having overlapping soreness between the times that you're training the muscle group, a little too high. You want the, the ghetto MEV should be like non, non overlapping soreness from the time that you train the muscle again. But yes, I do the same thing. I've gotten better. Um, I've gotten better about it's So for me, it's not the sets. It's the RIR. 
I'm I'm guilt I am guilty as charged. And I talk about this shit all the time to other people say don't don't do the mistake that I do. Um I always want to push it a little harder on that first week back. So I usually will do like a like a three, two, two, maybe two or one. I, I usually don't push the zero anymore. Usually it's like mostly two throughout and maybe like three in the first week, but it's always like I want to just get right to two and not because two is like your your training, right? You feel good. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm not not messing around. Three is kind of like wish I could do more. Yeah. I'm always, yeah, it's i uh, I'm, I'm the same. And I think a lot of people listening are probably the, the same way you are purposely holding yourself back for the greater good of hypertrophy, but it's not always the easiest thing to do in practice. You know, what's great for that is um, don't listen to like your pump up music, listen to like a boring ass audiobook <laughs> or podcast. So you're not, cause if you put the music on, then you start jamming and you're like, yeah, let's go. Right. But if you're listening to like a book, or like a news, I, I listen to a, a news podcast that I really like, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's the news, right? So you can't get too amped up. Yeah. That's, there's a good way to not really enjoy the training at the same time. <laughs> it I gets really hard. It back. It's hard. <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah, that's on, the, on the occasion I'll put music on <laughs> yeah. and I, I always, then I'm like, I'm at one and zero RIRs the whole time. I know exactly what you mean. I think um, what helps me is, I, I don't know if this is the same for you, James. Once I've got that first week out of the way, though, you know, I've, normally I've been semi-successful at it at least. I don't, normally I'm pretty good at it. But after that first week, it gets way easier because I'm like, even though I do it for the first week where I kind of have a load and rep goal that I want to achieve, but every week there on, I'm just like, right, I just want to add one rep here, add a little bit of load here. And I don't really think about yes. necessarily anything else. It comes a bit robotic. Yes, Absolutely. There are some, you know, obviously there's some times where you might add some sets and stuff too, but once you, after you get through that first week, it's like, you kind of know where you're at and it's just like, okay, let's, let's either match or let's add a rep or let's add some weight. And then it just becomes much easier to not overdo it. I totally agree. And actually that's, uh, that was another question I had was uh, using the kind of this almost SFR to determine whether or not you should add uh, additional sets within a workout mm. so maybe like you said you've gone week one and you've kind of hit the mev that kind of ghetto and then week two you come in you do the same number of sets in that session and you're like maybe but you, you describe this kind of stimulus sensation as being maybe even less than the week before maybe that's a, a case where you might add one or maybe you had overlapping soreness in that week one and so you maybe think about changing set numbers then yeah so like for me um i like to use kind of a combination of like what we would call a pre-planned like a you know, like, a, like if you wrote a program for somebody and say, you're going to do this number of sets at this time, somewhere between that and auto regulation, where I've done enough mesocycles over the course of my lifting career to know I'm probably going to end, you know, with this many sets on chest and probably going to end with this many sets on legs. So what I like to do is I like to use my ghetto MEV indicator to kind of start. And then I know roughly where the end is going to be. And then I kind of auto-regulate my way through the middle, right? And so kind of in the beginning, I might add a set during week two. Uh, and usually you can either match reps or increase reps or, you know, something along those lines. But kind of those middle weeks, I, do, I add one, I'll usually add sets the first week or two, or I might add sets to one exercise and not other exercises, something along those lines. And then I'll be a little bit more focused on increasing reps or increasing weight to match reps in that middle zone. And then as I get closer to that finish line, where it might be like week four of uh, week four of four, or like kind of the week three of four, I might maybe start pushing the sets up so to the point where I think 
I'm going to finish at. So it's kind of a, it's, it's hard because you can't give somebody a straight answer of like, when do you necessarily add sets? The correct answer is always auto-regulation, but auto-regulation doesn't have to be a shot in the dark either. Like if you've trained, you know, for several years, you, you know, roughly like per session and per week, kind of what you can tolerate and what the upper ends of those are going to be. For me, that's usually about 10 sets per muscle per session. So for example, like chest, I might do five sets of like a, you know, flat bench and then maybe five sets of like an inclined dumbbell or something, you know, pretty basic. Um, so I know that, you know, for my ghetto MEVs, it might be, you know, like four on the bench, three on the inclined dumbbells, and I'm going to eventually work my way up to five and five on both of those at some point. And how I do that is mostly just kind of vibing and feeling just like, okay, how do I feel today? Do I want to add one more in the flat bench? No, flat bench was kind of wonky. My back was tight because I was sitting in the car all day yesterday. Maybe I'll just add a few on the dumbbells and see how that goes. You know, you can kind of, you can play that by ear. It doesn't have to be this like very cut and dry thing where it's like, it must be this progression. It must be this reps, this sets. You can kind of just vibe it and feel it out. Uh, um, I wouldn't say that for a beginner. I think for people who are beginners, it's it's better to just kind of progress them through. And then this is kind of where the art of coaching comes in. As they become just a better lifter in general, you kind of start giving them more and more autonomy and, and saying like, do as many as you think. Like that's a good place to start for a lot of people when you start relinquishing like, hey, when you get to the peak week, if you want to do more, do more. And if you want to do less, do a little bit less. And they come back and they say, oh, I did this for this and this. And then you go, okay, great. And then as they get more and more in touch with these ideas, right, you kind of release more and more of the control and say, why don't you just kind of feel it and vibe it and see how it goes? Start with this. I'm going to write the starting. I'm going to write the ending. And then I want you to just vibe kind of through the middle and get back to me and we'll, we'll see how it goes. And then it becomes more of a discussion rather than you telling them saying like, it's week three. Why didn't you do this many? It's like, no, I didn't feel like I was in a good groove on this. Can we switch out this exercise? It was really bad SFR with this rep range. And that's where um, I think it becomes more of a fun coach interaction because at that point, when you have an intermediate or maybe like kind of more advanced athlete, um, you're just kind of like, I don't know what I'm trying to say. You're just kind of like pointing them in the right direction yeah. and you're saying, go ahead. And then when you, when you come up, when you have issues, let me know and we'll work, we'll work through it versus a beginner. It's like, it's, it's a lot of handholding saying like, okay, this exercise, this rep range, this progression, this ending point. Um, so that's kind of a fun part for me too, where it's just kind of letting people figure it out because a lot of the times there's not a cut and dry answer. Like, how do I know when to add a set? Yeah. Feel it out. See how it goes. You know, <laughs> Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicuff so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The minicuff movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together. That's uh, no, that's it's great to hear because I think that, I mean, it kind of perfectly explains my experience with understanding my own body and understanding like SFR and autoregulation and 
I've just found it's got so much better. And I don't even like if someone was to ask me how many sets have you got on, where did you finish like for various muscle groups at the end of that mesocycle? cycle, I'm like, I kind of fell, I found my way there. I don't actually know. Like I could look at my spreadsheet and tell you, but I don't know off the top of my head because I don't have particular like numbers I'm trying to hit every week in terms of numbers of sets. Like it's this pre uh, pre planned thing. And that's what I try and get with like you kind of described it with my clients. Like I only have a few who are, they literally just, they take the reins in terms of water regulating that. Cause like you said, you don't know as well as they know like you might say i think you should do another set on this kind of i don't know it might be a barber ben of row but they might be in the gym and think man i wish i didn't do one more of those and i could have one more of this other back movement my back needs a bit more but maybe it's in the exactly. lats more than like the mid and upper back that's yeah or they might and they might come back to you and say like hey I, I was thinking about going up 10 pounds on the bent over row and you're looking at their their log and you're like actually why don't you stay at the same why don't you stay at the same because your reps are really good right there and they go oh, okay cool you know like if you do if you add 10 pounds and you're going to be at this lower rep range and we know that that's not a great sfr for you something you know anything like that um and that's kind of like i think what's fun about coaching is just kind of figuring a lot of that stuff out and sometimes you have it's hard because you have to make notes you know you have to like oh this client like oh yeah the, this guy responds this way or this person responds a different way and that, 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 that. um and that's why for me, I have to, I've kept my coaching loads relatively low because it's, it can be hard to keep track of, you know, yeah. I can't, uh, I can't take hundreds of clients like some people can. It's just, yeah. and that's just my own limitations. I try to, you know, I try to keep notes for the people that I work with and say like, okay, this person, these exercises, but it's a lot, it's a lot to manage, yeah. but it's fun. And uh, yeah, it kind of, it all brings back to, I don't know if I've actually said it, this might be the first time I've said it, but I tend to use like stimulus to fatigue ratio as an overarching kind of like guiding star for like periodization for exercise selection for like rep ranges everything you said that i kind of as long as like i'm trying uh, that's essentially i guess what we try and do with periodization is to try and get the maximum stimulus for the kind of manage fatigue at the best in the best way and that's why like i don't know like you said there you might auto regulate and put in a down set versus just doing another set that drops reps really low and you only know that once you understand these things that you're talking about in terms of on the stimulus side, what you're trying to feel out. Yeah. And I think this idea can be contextualized in other training situations too. Like the way that we're talking about it is, is mostly like a hypertrophy type discussion, but you can also look at it in terms of developing things like strength and power. I'm obviously more on the, the sporting side of things compared to Mike, who's just totally on the bodybuilding side of things. But that same idea is kind of um, applicable to a lot of different aspects of training where you're just kind of looking at like, what am I putting in? What am I getting out? What's the net balance of those two factors of the stimulus and the fitness that I expect to gain, but the fatigue that's also going to be there. And right, and that's like a big part of periodization is, is li like, if you look at what periodization is, a lot of it's just managing those two things, right? So what you're trying to get is your athlete into a state of what we call as preparedness, which means the balance of those two, like how much fitness relative to the fatigue that they're carrying, that's periodization right there is just yeah. managing those two things across time so that they can perform well. Same idea here in hypertrophy training, you are trying to get the best ratio of those two things in so you can do as much productive training as you can and reap all the benefits of being a jacked buff person. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, that links to my final question, James, and that kind of comes into this discussion around staleness, maybe adaptive resistance, mm. which we can again potentially use this kind of overarching principle of stimulus to fatigue ratio to try and identify like when exercises or rep ranges or even just higher volume hypertrophy training is starting to become stale. Yeah, so this is a really interesting one because staleness is something you can kind of work through in a number of different ways. So um, the first thing that you'll notice when staleness becomes an issue is when we look at some of those kind of ghetto MEV indicators like pump, 
you know, soreness, disruption, mind muscle connection, you get this sensation of what most people will call feeling flat, meaning you go in, you move around, and you don't really feel anything. It's kind of like the emo depressing version of lifting. We're just like, wah, wah, I don't feel, man, I don't feel anything. I'm nihilistic. Um, so what you'll notice is some of those indicators start going down. You didn't really get sore, didn't get a pump. You're, you're not making either uh, progress in repetitions or progress in weight across week to week. It's just kind of like, you're just kind of showing up and going through the motions, right? That's what how most people will start to experience this. Sometimes that can be paired with like kind of overreaching symptoms where they might you might feeling like more despondent about training. You might kind of see some of those things, but typically it's on like an exercise basis where you just, just you know, whatever you're doing, you're just kind of not feeling it. And so there's a couple things that you can do to kind of work around that. The first thing is just actually just changing out the exercise, just picking something new, right? Um, and that's a really simple way of just kind of working around it. Most people, and this is this isn't like a an evidence-based thing. This is just an observation on my my part. I think most people get around, again, this is just an observation, about three mesocycles on a movement before it kind of, you see that like plateauing effect where they've been making a lot of progress and then it just kind of starts flattening out towards the end. For me, usually it's around three or so. Um, some people can go flat sooner than that. Some people can do the same exercises. Like beginners can do like high bar squats and bench presses for like years and still make progress, which is great. Um, for most intermediates, you know, probably about three. Uh, the one thing you can first thing is usually swap out the exercise. If if everything else is going well, swap out the exercise. Meaning like there's no reason to stop no reason to stop training at this point. Everything else is going well. It's just this one exercise. Another thing you can do is keep the same exercise in and change the repetition range. This one is where you can kind of squeak out one more meso. So if you change the rep range in which you were doing it, you might get one more meso out of it. But then after that, it's probably going to go flat again. So for example, if you were doing flat bench press five to 10, and you're kind of going, eh, I'm not feeling this one, but I, I, I want to keep my bench press for whatever reason, whether it's like because you, you want to maintain the technique or you're a power lifter, whatever, I want to keep that in. You might actually go, okay, let's do bench press 10 to 20 instead of 5 to 10. And then all of a sudden, boom, now you're feeling it again. Now you're getting into a good groove that you were feeling in the first few mesos. Now you're getting that back. Okay, great. That'll buy you a little bit of time, but not much. Another thing you can use are uh, intensification techniques like doing myo reps or doing um, like metabolite kind of protocols where you're doing like high reps, uh, constricted rest, or even like occlusion type training, any of that kind of stuff. Um, again, will buy you a little more time on an exercise, excuse me, but not a ton of time. So if you feel like it's going flat, it might get you through one more, and then you're probably going to have to do an exercise swap at some point. The real problem is when you start getting, I don't want to use the, systemic's not the right word, but when you start getting that flat feeling across all of your training. So everything that you're doing is kind of just feeling like, like you show up, you get, you go through the motions and you leave and you're like, I don't really even feel like I worked out. I feel like I just like gave up a lot of my energy to the world and I'm getting nothing back. That happens, right? Um, in that case, then you have to use a, a few more specific fatigue management strategies because at that point, usually people get there when they have been doing really, really hard training for a prolonged period of time. So this is like somebody who's been doing like three or four mesos relatively consistently across like exercises and rep ranges and stuff. Um, and they get to that point where they're just like, I got nothing. And then you might consider using um, something like an active rest period. Um, sometimes you can just do like an extended deload, like you just do your normal deload, take an extra week or two, something like that, active rest, anything like that. And that will really help. Um, the classic example of this is like, uh, 
For those of you who have ever gone on like family vacation and had to take some significant time off of lifting, this is where I kind of had this epiphany as like a, a young student. Uh, I think my family and I went to, when was it? it was, we went to Italy and I was gone for like two weeks and I came back to the gym after uh, some extended time off because Italy doesn't have like a huge lifting culture. So it just wasn't really a thing. Um, went back to the gym. What happens? I do like one set of squat and I'm like, ah, I can't move. Like you, you're just completely destroyed from doing what would otherwise be like a very low impact workout, right? So what ends up happening is some deliberate, I don't wanna say time off, but reducing your training volume down to kind of what we would call maintenance levels, which is where your technique, your muscle mass is not degrading, helps resensitize your muscles to the training stimulus itself. So one problem that you can run into when you have this kind of like total body flatness is that you've actually just become desensitized to training as a result of training really hard. So you get what we call, as Steve mentioned earlier, adaptive resistance, where your body's just saying like, you've milked as much of this out as you can, we're plateauing. And it's, it's kind of a funny problem, right? Because it's a good thing in a way, because your body has become so accustomed and so adapted to the stimulus that you've been providing it, that it's no longer overloading to you. So your body is actually like, it's actually a good sign that your body is um, responding to the training. It's actually saying like, this ain't shit to me now, bitch. You got to do something else. I'm that good. You got to think of something else to do. So uh, the way that you kind of work around that when you're feeling that full body flatness is just taking some time off of really hard training. And that's when we would introduce something like a resensitization phase, a maintenance phase, active rest. Any of those things are kind of means to the same end of just like low volume training, training that is not, uh, it's, it's low volume in the sense that it's not going to be stimulating further gains most likely, but it's just going to be maintaining your current gains. And by gains, I mean like your muscle mass, your technique, maybe even just like your habits. I think that's one to consider as well. Like if, if getting to the gym and doing having a routine is important to you, like just maintaining those routines, that's kind of like a maintenance volume type situation. And then what you'll find is after about two weeks, sometimes, I mean, some people might need a little bit more like three, but I think on average two weeks for most people is enough where all of a sudden they start hitting those ghetto MEV indicators right away in week one of training. So that's kind of like how I would approach it. A lot of it's kind of like acute where you just start picking out exercises that have just kind of meh. Um, I'm trying to think of one. I just did this recently. Um, what was it? One of, I just, I literally just, just had this thought in my own training. It was like an exercise where for like one mezzo, it was really great. I was getting huge pumps, huge soreness. I was like, this is fantastic. And then like the next mezzo just totally flat immediately. Um, and I was like, man, that sucks. Oh, uh, um, uh, metabolite arms is that way for me. Uh, if I'm doing like, a, it's just like you get one, that's it. Uh, you got to swap it out with something else. Um, so it comes up and it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, if, if, it's any, if anything, I think it's like an ironically good thing where your body is showing that it's making changes to the stimulus that you provided, but you got to mix it up from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really well described in that. Like, I think we can be stubborn with lifts. We can be stubborn with lifting. And, uh, sometimes if you just, and I've been there where I've pushed it longer than I should have, where I've just, I've done like a whole mesocycle grinding through that feeling of just like nothing's feeling that great and then i take it and i mean at least i took it but i know there's people that are probably in situations where they just keep going through this feeling of not really feeling like they're getting anything that much from their training uh i don't know if you've experienced one question i have for you james would be uh in terms of someone who's maybe getting all the signs of a kind of good exercise they may be getting soreness and everything but they're not the lift just seems to be stagnant mm. have you seen that is is that a sign of staleness what would you do in that sort of situation 
it can be a sign of staleness. Um, the other thing too is like some people just are not huge responders, and that's just kind of like an unfortunate truth. Um, I find myself in that situation a lot with my own training, where um, I like Mike's really big on moving more weight week to week. He's like always been a big advocate for not not taking you know massive weight increment jumps, but just like adding more weight throughout the mesocycle as you go. And him and I are different in that way, where I can usually add reps. Um, but I usually can't add a ton of weight uh, week to week. And sometimes I actually have to wait until I've hit kind of the upper threshold of the rep range before I can add extra weight and still kind of be in that range. Some people are just like that. Um, in some cases, like if you have somebody who is, I would say kind of like anywhere between like beginner to intermediate, and you're not really seeing them make progress in terms of repetitions, in terms of weight, and it's, and it's like, very obvious that they should be like if you have a beginner client and they're like not making progress that seems kind of odd and that would just be indicator that they're like kind of a a non-responder at that point and that would just be like a difficult conversation to have just be like hey you can still make progress you just some people are just not as prone to strength or and muscle gains as other people and that's okay um but it's definitely not um an end-all be-all so i think for like the intermediate lifter if you're not making progress, but you're still like getting like skin splitting pumps, you're still getting like respectable soreness, you still feel like a really strong interoception with the movement, um, I think it's okay as long as you're not also seeing signs of overreaching. Um, so just keep an eye on that. You know, like I was just thinking about what you said earlier. I think some people get caught on certain exercises um, as a specificity kind of error because they think of lifting in terms of like sports or like powerlifting, where they're like, I need to like keep doing the squat so I can be stronger at the squat. And in some cases, like in the, in like powerlifting, like you do need to maintain some familiarity with certain movements longer than others, even if they are not like you might, you might consider them being flat. It's kind of a necessary problem in order for you to continue making gains in strength or performance in the hypertrophy world the performance improvements are not necessarily what we're seeking after. What we're really seeking after is those ghetto MEV indicators, the interoception, right, of the actual stimulus. So bodybuilding is very forgiving in that regard where you don't have to see massive performance improvements. Um, you don't have to stick with the same exercises. You can, you can really use a, a, a lot of variety. And I say that hesitantly, meaning like I do think it's good to pick something and, and do it for a minute and get all the gains that you can from it before swapping things out. But I think a lot of people kind of think of it in terms of like, well, I need to keep squatting because squats, right? And it's like, you're not a power lifter. You can literally do whatever quad movements you want to do. And if you're going flat and you're not making progress, like you can just pick something else and you might find that something else all of a sudden, boom, you take off and that's totally fine. And I think in a lot of cases, it's like a, a kind of like a weird specificity error where I think a lot of people grow up doing sports and they have that kind of context of like, I need to increase my performance on these lifts and I got to keep them around in order to, to do that. Hypertrophy is very forgiving. You don't have to do that. I think that's really well explained. And actually that leads me to one final question associated with this is flipping it the other way around a situation where someone's seeing progress in a lift, but they're not getting their ghetto. Uh, they're not getting those ME. Uh, so the, the indicators of pump disruption soreness, but they're still managing to pro progress the lift in that situation. Is that a concern? Maybe uh, that's a, that's a funny conundrum, right? So like, um, 
I am, this is just my opinion, but very often at, in, in coaching, it's one of those kind of situations where I usually say like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So if somebody's making progress, um, a couple things can be going on. If they're kind of relatively new, they might just be making a lot of like neurological changes as a result of their technique, adapting the technique to whatever movements that you've programmed. So they're just getting better at the movement, right? Which is which is good. The better they get at the movement, the, the better their ability to actually present an overload to themselves, which is kind of a funny conundrum. Um, it can also be that they're actually just making gains that whole time, even if they're not feeling it. Another thing too is like they might just not have the self-awareness to recognize some of those um, kind of intrinsic properties where they're just like not very in tune with their body at all. They're kind of, I hate, I, I use this term lovingly, but they might be kind of motor morons where they're, they're just people who are not used to doing a lot of exercise and not used to how that feels. So you might be like, did you get a pump? And they don't know what a pump is. They have no idea what they're doing. Um, so I would say more often than not, if they're seeing progress, they're probably doing something right. And depending on where they are in their career, you might have them just continue on with what they're doing. Or you might kind of, if they're maybe more intermediate, advanced, you might kind of ping them a little bit more and kind of be like, let me, why don't you send me a lifting video of what you're doing? Well, maybe we'll just try doing some other things. Um, but it, I, I have a hard time making a case against somebody making progress and saying like, well, you didn't get a pump, you should stop what you're doing. That you, yeah. you stop, you know, you know what I mean? That's a tough, that's a tough sell for me unless there's something else there. It's yeah. So it's, I bring it up as a particular example for myself in that, like, I don't know if, I, I guess the perfect scenario is you get both, you're getting those kind of uh, biofeedback measures and you're yep. getting progress. And that obviously for me as a lifter, that feels so much better. Um, but I had the hack squat in for, ages but i was just making progress on it but i wasn't really feel it wasn't feeling great but i was making progress and i was being stubborn i was like well if i'm progressing it, i have to keep it because like his progress is hard and i, I should keep it if i'm progressing but um i rotated it eventually because i was like the, the sfr was just so bad i was get i was barely getting the stimulus side and was getting shattered from it from a couple of sets i was oh, like, I rotated okay. it out for something else so man this just feels feels miles better but I think there's probably a horrible situation that someone advanced to get into, I imagine, where they switch exercises too often, where they just, they, like, you want to see a PR maybe before you switch an exercise again, because you're just relearning yes. it and getting that novelty sensation. Exactly. So uh, most people, in my experience, will hit kind of, let's, let's just assume they start a new block of training, right? And they kind of have some relatively fresh exercises that you've popped into Meso 1. <laughs> In my experience, most people will hit their best kind of like groove on the movement in their second mezzo where they've been doing it for, let's say, you know, about a month or so. That first month, a lot of it is just that, that recalibration, like you just said, like, okay, I've done this before, but I'm kind of like getting better at this. That second mezzo is usually where it's like, okay, a lot of the preliminary like kind of positive, negative neural feedback loops are done. And now we're just in like the groove of training. And that's where they're really going to, you're going to know whether or not that one should stay. So if they get to mezzo two and it's still kind of like, that's like a pretty clear sign that you probably need a swap or you might consider doing like a different rep range. So if you were doing like five to 10, you might consider going up to 10 to 20 or, you know, something else, depending on the exercise or doing mile reps or something, you know, you, you could, if you could make those changes as well to see, but by meso two, like you, 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 you should, you should know if that one was a good movement for you or not, because a lot of the guesswork should be done. Makes a lot of sense. 
Well, James, uh, I've kept you long enough. Thank you very much for this chat. I think it's been very interesting. Lots of practical take-homes as well. And like, just like, I think a lot of people know these concepts, but then talking them through in uh, a coaching format, I think is really helpful for people to understand them better and apply them even better. So thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Glad I could help. I hope people also just don't get too, sometimes I think we talk about this stuff and they get too <laughs> rigid with it. They're like, I got to do math while I'm lifting to figure this out. It's like, a lot of it's just feel it out and see what happens yeah no i mean that's yeah that's a good description of it to be honest uh and have you got any projects going on anything uh, you want to let the listeners know about uh we just launched our um the rp just launched our diet uh certification program which i'm really stoked about we've been working on it for uh the team's been working on it for over two years i've been i kind of jumped wow. in in the middle uh, and I hopped in about a year ago or maybe a little bit more. And we just launched that. Um, we're really super happy about it. This first cohort just started. But if people are interested and they want, um, you know, a little bit, if they want to, if they're thinking about doing like a diet coaching situation for themselves, it's something to check out. You can check it out over at our website. I've been sitting on a manuscript that I've been trying to do for years now. And I just uh, haven't gotten around to finishing it. But that's something I'm working on for a sport, sport periodization uh, book once, once my schedule frees up a little bit. And let's see what else. Oh, yeah, uh, I'll get in trouble if I don't mention the RP Summit in December in Las Vegas. We're piggybacking off of the uh, Olympia. So uh, if you guys are interested in hanging out with the RP crew, we're going to be out there and uh, give us some talks and hang out and having fun. I know I have at least one client making his way there. And he was oh, like, cool. it's the Olympia weekend. And he was very happy that it was also combined with that. So that's that's very exciting. I, I mean, you guys are all amazing to hang out with. And it's always a great bunch of people. So I definitely highly recommend that. And I could, can only recommend, obviously, everything that you guys at Renaissance Periodization are doing. Because I know how much time and effort and uh, the quality of work that you put in there as well. So, yeah, that comes highly recommended. And again, thank you, James. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you very soon. Thank you. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. 
I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.